We sing that uh, song with confidence, I know my name is written there. Indeed we can, if we are children of God, walking in the light as he is in the light. Luke chapter 10, the 70 returned to the Lord saying that the demons were subject to them and they were rejoicing that uh, the demons were subject to them, that they had power over demons. And it was on that occasion at verse 20 of Luke 10 that the Lord said, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And what a cause for rejoicing that is, to know that our names are written there. And as we talked about this morning in Paul's description of the Bible, as we called it, from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. We can know the Scriptures. And it's through that knowledge of the Scriptures and the obedience to the Scriptures that we can know that we know Him and thus know that our names are written there. By this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. 1 John 2 and verse 3. And the keeping of those commandments involves the exercise of great patience. Patience is a subject to which the writer James returns in the portion of James that we are about to study tonight as we continue our expository series from the epistle of James nearing a conclusion to this great epistle which has been called the gospel of common sense because there is so much practical instruction, practical instruction that leads to purity. And James in chapter 5 in the section we're looking at tonight verses 7 through 11 returns to a theme with which he began this great epistle, patience. You remember in the first eight verses of chapter 1, James dealt with patience and showed to his readers the power of patience, saying in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And in these first eight verses, especially of James 1, with which we began our study, he introduces us to a subject to which he now returns in chapter 5 at verse 7, where we begin tonight through verse 11. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until... It receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And so as we said, James deals with a subject that he introduced his book with in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the first six verses we studied last time of this fifth chapter of James, James had obviously turned aside to address the rich oppressors, those who were not Christians, and condemn them for their obsession with the things of the world. But now in verse 7, he returns to the mainstream of thought in this epistle, writing directly now to brethren. Patience and the Lord's return, we see in verses 7 
through 9. Therefore, be patient, brethren, or long-suffering, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? That's his illustration here. Waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. Those who suffer at the hands of the oppressors and are faithful to the end, James reminds us, will be blessed. And so he says, be patient. Literally, be long of temper. One who is not short of the will to persist. One who is long-suffering. We need to understand and appreciate, James reminds us, that the Lord will see that justice is done to all, provided you follow his example of long-suffering and his example of patience. The suffering saints, the suffering saints are to show long-suffering when they are persecuted and toward their persecutors, knowing that God is going to avenge them, God is going to see to it that full justice is done. James is reminding his readers that right will eventually triumph. And that is a lesson that we need to understand and appreciate. He says, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, we don't know when that is. James did not know when it would be. But he's obviously referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's returning to, uh, referring to his coming, that is, his return with the clouds. You remember that in Acts chapter 1, uh, at verse 9, beginning as the uh, apostles, as they watched Jesus taken up uh, in the cloud, out of their sight, that as they looked steadfastly toward heaven, there were two men in white apparel who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. This is the coming to which James obviously refers but James didn't know when it was any more than you and I know when it will be. And as we have often uh, talked about, there have been those throughout time, and yes, in recent times even, who have predicted when the Lord will come again. And those times of prediction have come and gone, and many of the predictors themselves have come and gone. Because tragically, they misapprehend the teaching in Matthew 24, especially in the early part of that chapter, about the signs that pertain to the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in A.D. 70, and they misapply those signs to the second coming of Christ, failing to appreciate the division in that chapter where Jesus, at verse 36 of Matthew 24, obviously says, but of that day and hour, that is the second coming, of that day and hour, no one knows. At that point in time, only the Father in heaven, Jesus said, knew when the Lord would come again. Believers in the Christian age are taught to watch for, that is to live in expectation of the coming of the Lord. We are taught to be prepared. And it is not correct to say that the apostles believed that they would be living when the Lord returned. There is no indication that any apostle believed in the Lord's imminent return. In fact, one apostle, you remember, the apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 wrote to those Christians there to correct their misapprehension about the second coming of Christ and the fact that their loved ones, because they had died before Christ came, thinking that Christ was going to come immediately, since their loved ones had died, even though they died as Christians, that because they had died before he returned, they were going to lose their reward. 
And Paul said, no, that's not the case. When he comes, whenever that is, they'll be raised. Those who are alive together with them will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, or in this way, we shall always be with the Lord. But he did not reinforce their mistaken view at the time that the Lord was going to come in their lifetime. Nor does James nor does James indicate that he thought the Lord was coming uh, in his lifetime. Nor did the Apostle Peter. In fact, if you look with me at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, you see that Peter anticipated his death in this text. In 2 Peter 1, in verse 12, he writes, Therefore I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them, and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, as the New King James renders it, this tabernacle, as the King James says, to stir you up by reminding you, notice this, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. You remember when that was? John chapter 21? When Peter and the Lord had that exchange, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He asked three times. And then he said, follow me. And he said, when you were young, you went where you wanted to go. But when you're old, there will be those who lead you where you don't want to go. That's what Peter refers to here. And he says, just as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Meaning what? That I'm going to put off my tent, my body, my tabernacle. In other words, that I'm going to die for the Lord. So Peter didn't have any misapprehension about the fact that the Lord, or the idea that the Lord was going to come in his lifetime, he anticipated dying. He didn't know for sure that he would die necessarily, except the Lord had certainly given that strong indication, hadn't he, that that would be the case. But he anticipated his death, not the event of the second coming. Peter indicated he would die before that event occurred. But our point is that because we do not know the time, we must live in a state of readiness. And then James uses that illustration of the farmer, the husbandman, as the King James renders it. The farmer, as the New King James puts it, waits for the precious fruit of the earth. He waits patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. We need to use that uh, illustration, see that illustration that James uses here of the farmer. With patience he waits for the harvest. James shows that it's the conviction that future good justifies present effort. And that makes any trial or difficulty that we face worth facing. Because the ultimate end will be worth it. The harvest comes at the end of the effort. The harvest doesn't come at the beginning. The harvest doesn't come at seed planting time. One must sow in order to reap. And that's the simple illustration that James reminds his readers about here, that we need to be patient and receive that earlier and latter rain as the farmer does. There are periods of uncertainty during the growing season for the farmer. Every time a farmer plants a crop, he does not know for sure that he will bear a, a big crop. He doesn't know for sure he'll bear a crop at all. It is entirely possible that he'll lose everything. But the experienced farmer, having done his part, trusts God and the agencies that God uses to, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9.10, provide seed to the sower and bread for food. And that's what he counts on. That's what he anticipates. The early and latter rains. 
And in the Old Testament, the, earlier, the early and latter rains are, are mentioned. Early rain came around October. It came soon or about the time of the fall planting season, and it provided the necessary moisture for that grain to germinate. And then the latter rain fell about March and caused the grain to fill out and ripen. The lesson here that James uses is that we need to be patient, waiting for the development of that which, like seed time and harvest, works out for man's ultimate good. Sometimes that's a hard lesson for us to learn, isn't it? We want patience and we want it right now, as the old expression goes. But we need, we need to understand and appreciate what James is writing by inspiration here. And so after giving us the illustration in verse 7, he then makes the application very clearly in verse 8 when he says, you also be patient. Just as that farmer waits for the early and latter rain, just as he anticipates the harvest, but he has to wait for it, just as he has to work for it and then wait for it to occur, you also be patient. You also be patient. You also be long-suffering. The burdened disciple is to wait patiently for deliverance from his trials and for the certain triumph of justice in his case because triumph is certain. But triumph may not come at the time we anticipate or necessarily want it to come, but it will come. Christians should not fret against life's difficulties nor have useless anxiety over hardships. Establish your hearts, he says. Establish your hearts, meaning make them firm. That is, make the purpose in your mind firm and sure and unwavering even in the face of trials, even in the face of difficulties. This verb here that is used here to, and translated established literally means to prop or to brace. It's the idea of support. It's the idea that we prop up our hearts by faith and we do not let our hearts sag or sink into weary moodiness or into weakened uncertainty that ultimately will lead to eventual unbelief. Because when that process starts and we don't stop it, then we could wind up, as the writer warned those Hebrew Christians in Hebrews 3.12, take heed, brethren, beware, look out, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And sometimes it is difficulties and trials and hardships that can cause us to begin to question, begin to doubt, weaken in our faith, and ultimately lead to unbelief. Don't let that happen, brethren, he says. Be patient, prop up your heart. And he doesn't mean the blood-pumping organ, obviously, but the mind, the biblical heart, the mind. Be strong. It reminds us of what Peter wrote in Second or First Peter one, verse thirteen. Therefore, he says, gird up the loins of your mind, as as men would take the flowing garments and pull them up around to the knee and tie that garment up with a belt so that they could walk more freely on a journal, a journey. Peter, in 1 Peter 1.13, uses that analogy and says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind for the journey through life, 
Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And incidentally in that text it goes on to say, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And part of that holiness is being patient, being steadfast, in trial. And then he adds, after saying, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, I just said that James didn't know when the Lord was going to come again any more than you know it or any more than I know it. What does he mean then when he says the coming of the Lord is at hand? Well, the coming he's talking about here is the return of the Lord in the second coming. I don't think there's any question about that. When James says it is at hand, is he saying that it's about to occur in a short period of time? No. He's simply saying that it is so certain, the second coming of Christ is so certain, that it needs to be regarded as being always near at hand. That is, it could occur at any time. That's exactly what he means, obviously. In other words, it could come in the next breath that I take before I can get another word out of my mouth. It could come at any moment in time. James did not mean the Lord would appear in the lifetime of those living inasmuch as Jesus himself taught that no one, as we already mentioned, knows the time of the return of the Christ except the Father in heaven, Matthew 24, 36 through 39. But James's point is, live as though it could happen at any time because it could. It is at hand. It is at hand. It could occur at any time. So, how should we be conducting ourselves in light of that possibility? The second coming is certain. The possibility that it could occur right in a moment is is there, we don't know, so don't grumble against one another, verse 9, brethren. Don't conduct yourselves in a way that is contrary to the will of God. The verb here when he says don't grumble or groan literally here is fretfulness or impatience with others. The disposition to blame somebody else for one's distresses. Do you think we live, incidentally, in a time in this country, if not this world, where, where people are seeking to blame someone else for virtually everything that they should be responsible for themselves, tragically, we do live in that time. I mentioned before that many years ago I saw a documentary on one of the major networks entitled, Are We Becoming a Nation of Victims? And that was many years ago. So long ago, I can't tell you when it was. But do you think it's gotten any better since there was some concern about whether or not we were blaming everybody else for our own problems? No, it's gotten worse, not better. Not better. And so, indeed, we don't need to blame someone else, don't need to murmur against others, especially, of course, those who are Christians should be avoiding that at all costs, lest you be what? Criticized? Is that what the verse says? You do that and you're going to be criticized. No, you do that, you're going to be condemned, he said, lest you be condemned. 
condemned. It's not, it's not a, a small matter to engage in the kind of grumbling and the kind of murmuring against brethren that James is talking about here. It never has been a light thing with God. Think with me about what took place in Numbers chapter 21. When the people of Israel murmured against God and against Moses there, that something they had done time and time again, and this time the fiery serpents, the poisonous snakes were sent among them, remember? And many of them died, and then they turned to God in repentance and cried out to Moses the mediator, please help us here. Pray to God that these snakes will be removed. And, of course, the instruction was to build the brazen serpent, and the ones who looked upon it would be relieved. What prompted all of that? Murmuring, grumbling, complaining. The attitude of the child of God should be as far from that grumbling, murmuring attitude as daylight is from dark. And yet it's not always so, is it? And so we make sure we're not caught up in that kind of, of attitude lest we be what? Lest we be condemned. Lest we be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. A very similar thought to the one he expressed in verse 8 when he said, The coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Literally is standing before the doors and thus ready to burst in, as it were, and execute sentence on those who are guilty of sin. In other words, the coming of the Lord is at hand, and that's equivalent to the judge standing at the door ready to come. Because when he does come again, he will come this time not as Savior, will he? He came initially as the Savior of the world. He didn't come to condemn the world. Jesus said so himself. He didn't come to condemn the world. Why not? He didn't need to. The world was already condemned. That's what he said. He came to save a world that was lost in sin. But when he comes again, when he comes again, he will come as judge, not as savior. And he's at the door, as it were now, ready to burst in. When he bursts in on me, I'd like to know, I want to know that I'm doing the right thing, don't you? And he could come in at any time. That's what James wants us to appreciate. The judge is Christ. The idea of being before the door indicates his nearness. And all that is meant by this is that the day of retribution for the evil is absolutely certain. It's absolutely sure. And the one who's going to administer punishment should be regarded as being ready to do it at any time because we do not know that time. And then in the last two verses that we're considering tonight... He gives examples of patience. Examples for us to see of those who were patient. My brethren, he says, take the prophets. Look at the prophets, in other words. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, showing that they spoke by what? The authority of God. They didn't speak on their own authority. They spoke in the name of the Lord, that is, by his authority. Take them, brethren, as an example of suffering and patience. 
For the proper way to endure affliction, in other words, James says, look at the prophets. Look at the prophets. If you look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 52, in Acts 7 verse 52 is a part of Stephen's address there to those Jews and an address that cost him his life because of his courage. What did he ask them on that occasion, those Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin before whom he stood and spoke? He said, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers? Those prophets to whom Stephen referred suffered with patience. And James says they serve as examples for all succeeding generations who would seek to please God in the same way. We may have to suffer. We may have to suffer. And we don't know what our lives will will hold for us, even those of us who are older. And frankly, at this point, I shudder to think of those who are a great deal younger than I am in terms of what they may face in this country during their lifetime. Hopefully and prayerfully, things will turn around in a way that there'll be a greater respect for uh, God's Word, at least a greater tolerance uh, for uh, Christians to be able to worship God in spirit and in truth, and there seems to be now, because there seems to be a growing intolerance at this point in time. Time will only tell just how intolerant that will become and to what it will lead. But we know that in biblical times it led to persecution and even death, as Stephen reminded those Jewish leaders about the prophets whom their forefathers had killed. They spoke in the name of the Lord by his authority. They were spokesmen for God. That's literally what a prophet is, as a spokesman for God. And often when the people resented the message, they mistreated the messenger. And we could be not far from that kind of time again. We hope not. The endurance of the prophets, though, ought to encourage all of us, no matter what we face, because they endured. In verse 11... Indeed, we count them blessed, he says, who endure. We count them blessed who endure. Here, this blessedness is an inward blessedness. It results from the peace that reigns in the hearts of those who faithfully serve the Lord. There's a great passage along this line in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 38, where the writer asks, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains. 
and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Oh, what so many before us suffered and their faithfulness should have encouraged those to whom James wrote and thus should encourage us because this epistle is for us as well. But you know, many times we wonder why it is that the wicked seem to prosper and why the righteous suffer. But all we have to do is just go to the 73rd Psalm and see that same problem that same problem that the psalmist on this occasion had when he said, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. He knows that now he's writing, but then he takes us back to a time before he came to that full realization and says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? How can these things be? In other words, behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. And then the expression, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence for all day long. I have been plagued and chastened every morning. And then verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. When I truly looked at it from God's perspective and the perspective of his word, I realized God will ultimately avenge. And the wicked will eventually answer for their misdeeds. An infidel once addressed the following note to the editor of a county newspaper. It said, quote, Sir, I have a religious neighbor who when he prays, I curse. When he goes to church, I go fishing. Yet in October, my harvest is as bountiful as his. How do you explain it? The editor answered, Sir, you err in assuming that God settles all his accounts in October. He doesn't settle all his accounts in October, but he will settle them. James says you've heard of the patience or perseverance of Job. Remember Job? Job suffered greatly, yet in all of his suffering, what about it? Job 1.22 says, Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. The book of Job demonstrates the fact that a faithful man 
A faithful man will bear any form of trial rather than forsake God. And he says, and you've seen the end intended by the Lord, his end, his purpose, his aim, his design. What was it? What is it? That things will eventually work out if we'll just be patient because all will turn out for our ultimate good to those who love the Lord. Truly, as Paul stated, all things work together for good, Romans 8, 28. He says, how that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. In other words, the end, the design, the purpose of God, the plan of God is to show great pity and much mercy for his suffering saints. In Job's case, the Lord showed the greatest pity and compassion and this will also be true for all who endure as Job endured. There's so many lessons in patience in the Old Testament, and all should be taken to heart. And James reminds us of some of this in this great text we've looked at tonight. The desire for worldly gain, however, often possesses members of the church and the disposition to be dissatisfied with our situation is more common than it should be. We should learn. We should learn the folly of that worldly acquisition as a means to happiness because that's not going to bring us happiness. And that patience in affliction is the proper attitude for us as Christians to always maintain. But you know, that's the key. Patience for us as Christians. But who is it that has the power to be patient? The Christian. Those in the world don't have that power because they don't have the power that the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring to one's life. The power to be patient, the power to be all that God would have us be, is only found in the gospel. Therefore, we urge you to obey it tonight if you haven't. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ. Repent of your sins. Confess him to be the Christ. Be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you've done that but you've wandered, you have allowed the world to enter your life to an extent that you have lost sight of the greater, the greater reward that awaits you when this life is over. Maybe perhaps letting trials, difficulties, suffering, sorrows cause you to become weak and for your hearts to be no longer established as they should be. If you've sinned in a way because of that to bring reproach upon the church, repent in that same public way. If it's a private matter, you take care of that privately. But all of us need to certainly glean the lessons that James wants us to have by inspiration, that great lesson of endurance, patience, long-suffering, because truly the Lord will reward his faithful, and he will ultimately avenge his suffering saints. Tonight, if you need to respond, will you come as we stand to sing?